make me cry, guys. I know. Too beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Gary Geiger. Yeah. And Dave Artisan, who doesn't get as much credit as he totally deserves. <laughs> <laughs> They're a great American hero. Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Dino, and today you'll be joining me in a discussion on world-building for tabletop settings and managing a shared setting for novelizations. Whether it's a world meant for a D&D campaign or an expansive setting shared with several other creators, we'll discuss how to come up with those settings and how to manage them. Today, joining me are Chris and Rag, and we have a special guest, Phil Athens. He is the former senior managing editor of the Forgotten Realms D&D setting for Wizards of the Coast, and he is starting a world-building course for Writer's Digest. Excited to have you with us today, Phil. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. All right, so I think we will just kind of straight up jump into quickly talking about your work, Phil. If you'd like to just give a little recap for everyone, that'd be phenomenal. To make a long story short, right, I guess I, mean, I just have lived the science fiction and fantasy uh, lifestyle as long as I can remember for just a long time now. And just really got into D&D in particular pretty early on in, in the summer of 1978, right before I started high school. So just, you know, and and played it and was just instantly like, this is what I'm doing now, right? <laughs> this is it for me. And I ended up starting to work at, at TSR in 1995. So just a little bit less than two years before Wizards of the Coast came in and, and bought up the company and moved us to Seattle. And I was there till 2010, always in the book publishing end of things, but also worked on the, you know, developing the fourth edition, um, sort of complete redo of, Forg of the Forgotten Realms. Oh, you were, you were there through that when they did the time jump? Yeah, I was, I was kind of, I, it was, it was myself, Rich Baker and Bruce Cordell who did all of that, that development work, which was mostly just sort of waiting for some, some word of what was coming out of the fourth edition D and D team. And it was almost never anything that was remotely manageable. So it was like, well, that's <laughs> a complete redo. Let's see. <laughs> How do we even remotely oh, yeah. accommodate that? And then it was like, I think maybe we we can try this. Okay, we'll do that. And then another complete rethink would happen like a day later. And, you know, so it was, um, it was just sort of trying to not even fit a round peg into a square hole. But, you know, I don't know. Sorry, are there any truth to the rumors um, that Ari Salvatore and Ed Greenwood tried like a thousand different ways to convince wizards to not do the time jump? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't even, yeah, I, yes and no. No, there was a, there was a meeting that we held at, at Gen Con before really 4th edition was even announced that there was going to be a 4th edition. And it had some of those key people there. Ed Greenwood was definitely there. Bob Salvatore was there. And 
at that point, we were sort of, we think the only way to do this is a hard reset, that it's going to be everything about the way the world works essentially was changing. And, it, and that's the sort of thing that if, if you're not one of those people who are playing D&D, you know, at least in starting in third edition, and then saw fourth edition, you kind of don't really realize it wasn't compatible at all. Like There was no way to just sort of yeah. say, I'm going to kind of add feats to my second edition character. And, and yeah, I can see how this, you know, it's complicated, a little complicated, but I can, I can do it. You know, it was really just a hard, hard reset in terms of everything in, in the way the world worked, right? We're talking about world building. It was, Magic has always worked this way in D&D, and now all of a sudden it works a completely different way. And, you know, not in in the sort of, well, I can cast a spell, and this is how many spells I, I get per day, and that kind of thing. It was close to the same. It was where magic comes from, how it manifests, who gets what, and <laughs> what you get. It wasn't just, it, there was no way to just say, oh, it was kind of always like that. You know, like, oh, don't, when you read all those old books, just pretend that like the evil planes were only one plane and all the good planes were only one plane. And, you know, it, there, there was no way to make those two things work together without a, a complete stop and restart. And, it, you know, I mean, there would, in terms of were people sort of arguing against it, I, to be honest, everyone was arguing against it except some very small group of people. And and I can't even tell. I know for sure that the names of two of them, and that was that who were in that, you know, part of this uh, the D and D fourth edition development team. And I don't know where that their marching orders were from. I think there was some sense of make this more compatible with, or or something, you know, maybe more friendly to video games. That was kind of a rumor that was going around, but mostly it was just. Oh, it's going to be really, really different, but it's going to be so cool and great, you know, that everybody's going to like it. So he's like, all right, well, let's go. (laughs) And all of that, all things being equal, I think in the end, what we had in that fourth edition campaign setting was pretty cool. It was just for the Forgotten Realms fan, it was just too much all at once. It was, it was. It was, it was very heavy. I was. I was playing a lot of 3.5 then and living through that. It was like, well, what what is happening to the setting? And it wasn't only until years later that I'm like, you know what? I kind of like this. I should have given it more of a chance. Right. But that's the thing that I think people didn't really. And I think we also and we being just wizards in general just did a poor job of is saying this isn't meant to be all of your characters and everything that you've been playing all along now live in this world or you play through the spell plague and then you develop through this whole thing it was if you are playing third edition or before then keep using all the old stuff right but if you want to get into fourth edition this is the forgotten realms that make sense in the fourth with the fourth edition mechanics they were meant to be completely separate and that's where a lot of things got muddied up because there's a very carefully crafted schedule for when the novels would release that would sort of tell that story a little bit, the kind of the change story, the spell plague story. And then they, there would be a sort of hard restart, and now we're into that future timeline. But that never really developed well as 
you know, just sort of schedules were changed. And there was a, a giant global economic depression, too, in the middle of that, which is kind of, <laughs> sort, of <laughs> sort of the unknown thing that was thrown into the middle of that, that really, it was just sort of, if you could just sit down and think of what would be the worst possible time to tell the entire D&D community that everything you've ever bought is now just completely useless and zero and you have to start over fresh from, right? That would have been it. It was, we need you to, yeah, we need you to make a complete new buy-in altogether, completely different, while you either just got laid off or you're pretty sure you're about to take off. And that was like everybody, right? So. It was, there were some things that we could have done differently. And then there were some things that were sort of attacking us from the outside. And so suddenly, I mean, borders went bankrupt. I mean, it was all this total, you know, dislocation of everything around us. So we had to slow down the release of novels, which then made fourth edition Forgotten Realms seem like it was disaster world. Like there was this terrible thing happening. And that's all it was, was this kind of, Apocalypse, unfolding apocalypse when that wasn't the intention. And if you look again at the fourth edition campaign setting, it was this terrible thing happened in the past, and now this is what the world looks like. And the world is fourth edition compatible. Right? And <laughs> we're just assuming that all of, every, all of your characters weren't even born then, and they don't know that it used to be a different way, and they're not all longing for you know, the pre-apocalyptic old days. It was just that sort of the most successful book series basically did that and said, oh, no, we've lived through this, tor- you know, this terrible catastrophe and all of our friends are dead. How sad is that? Which ended up just making fourth edition seem like disaster world. <laughs> I don't know. It, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, of all the regrets, I guess it was kind of I regret that people never really had a chance to see how cool it was, but it shouldn't have happened at all right we shouldn't have been in the position of having to completely break it and put it together again in a different form just to kind of go back to a facsimile of what you had in 3.5 with 5e Mm -hmm. yeah and then you know then i was gone i left in 2010 so i had no part of fifth edition at all or that story that sort of tried to repair it so i don't know you live and learn and then hope that you know there isn't a depression somewhere in the middle of yes <laughs> your best laid plans <laughs> i can only imagine how having a depression ruins your release plans <laughs> it, i think we weren't like the probably the least of the damage that was done to you know to, to businesses yeah. around you know wizards of the coast in general survived it so i guess we can say you know success you know, or or it could have been worse, but that that's something that I think everybody needs to kind of keep in mind in terms of fourth edition. That I believe you if you say you don't want to just trash your D and D campaign that maybe has been running. I mean, I have friends who are still playing in the D and D game that I played when I lived in Chicago, and I've been in Seattle for twenty two years. To have people like that say I don't want to just throw that away and start all over with fourth edition first level characters, I totally believe you. You know. But for other people who said, I just, I, it seemed like it might be good. I just couldn't do it. I also understand that. Here's one thing to keep in mind, though, just as sort of as a pitch for fourth edition, which I never generally just don't bother doing. <laughs> it, I think it is the best skirmish level miniatures rule set ever. Like, ever. 
And if it was sold maybe as chain mail or something else, just as a separate game, I think it, people would have just loved it. So in terms of a you know a rule set for moving miniatures around, and uh, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But as a role playing game, it's hmm. yeah. I think uh, at least for my part, I've tried to take a lot of in hindsight after I got over the initial irritation at the change in setting, like you were talking about. When I went back and looked at fourth edition, I found so many interesting you know, actual battle moves and things that make combat more engaging and fun that I've like picked apart those and added them to my games years later. So I definitely can see where you're coming from with saying it. It's a really good miniature system. Yeah. So if you still have all that stuff laying around, all the, you know, the plastic minis that you know <laughs> came with it and, or, you know, that were, were released around the same time. And all those battle mats that were just brilliant, and and you can see how it was to sort of set up almost like a this great board game, and it really, really does work. Yeah, I remember getting one of the supplement materials, the the creatures vault, which is just pogs of tons and tons of monsters from their their little codex bestiary, which is more like a codex for a tabletop game for a war game. Oh yeah, I remember those. Yeah, I still use the pogs, and I, I have a bunch of the battle mats. They're they're great resources. See, that's just, I, you know, and, and a great artifact from the, you know, they call it the Great Recession, but it sure felt like a depression to me. So I, you know, <laughs> of, you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, that, that was an answer to, I can't afford these miniature, you know, boxes of, blind boxes of plastic miniatures. We got to give people sort of a cheaper alternative. When we've now, you know, released a game that is is so miniature it's dependent as opposed to you know kind of the earlier editions of of D that would be like if you have miniatures that's really cool you know and people started to expect that but it wasn't necessary fourth edition was pretty much a miniatures game it so, totally agree you know just to sort of help people out how can we do this cheaper and then also like how can we do this cheaper but the, you know yeah those are I, I, if they're still out there and, and it's still fun just kind of working your way through the the shock to the system. And a lot of the art from that period too, gorgeous. Like it, it really was kind of coming into this more visual mindset. Like the theater of the mind was no longer viable in fourth edition. Mm -hmm. You just, you just could not play yeah. it. You had to have a mat and miniatures or pogs or people's mm -hmm. just something right yeah and i it, i think you know I, I i like the visual style of it too i think it's a little bit brighter where third edition was everything was very very dark like literally dark tones to the even the covers of the book everything felt very not really monochromatic but kind of right and fourth edition just really turned the lights on and and it, you sort of saw things with in daylight rather than in that sort of you know, gloomy space that the third edition really felt like to me anyway yeah. i think if you go back and look at a lot of those books their covers are very antique-ish very directly so even their even their internal spreads are very uh dated by now but like designed to look old and it, it definitely is interesting to see how that all kind of came together in the end now during that period um you were senior managing editor for the 
for uh, Wizards of the Coast, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that would be for the book publishing side. How did that work for trying to correlate all of this new story from so many different people who were so used to the story being one thing prior? Where was it? Was everyone kind of apprised as to the changes that were going on in the setting, or was it kind of a, hey, remember this? People were at different at different sort of periods in that in that transition that we knew we had some authors who or i you know i knew that i had authors that i could go to and say okay so i need you to fill in this hole right that i need you to write you know a trilogy or at least a book that moves us from this is what third edition or all the previous editions of Forgotten Realms looked like, and now you're going to tell the story of why it looks like this in the future. And unfortunately, again, not all of those managed to get started, but some of them did. But again, because they all slowed down, it, it started to look like Forgotten Realms is the is the disaster world. But you know, those were you know authors like Rich Baker and Thomas Reed, and definitely. Ari Salvatore as well, were all brought in to say, here's how we're going to kind of move this forward and, and, and what part of that story you're going to tell and then another part of the story, somebody else is going to tell another part of the story. They will transition from third to fourth. It was just a, an awful lot of juggling, basically. <laughs> a lot yeah. of, you know, just <laughs> me trying to map out what's really necessary to tell. And then making sure also that authors had their own space to, you know, that I'm not, I didn't send them outlines or anything like that. Just uh, things that were like sort of focus in on that and not the other thing. This brings up an interesting point. How was the process for kind of managing the setting through novelizations for keeping this shared setting mm -hmm. simultaneously shared, but consistent. It, it was actually pretty complicated when I first started there. So I started in 95, which was, you know, sort of deep into the second edition period when the Forgotten Realms in particular had just become so hyper detailed and was still in the process of those gigantic box sets that were full of so much information. And if you remember from that period, there would be, you know, two or three booklets inside that were just in tiny little type and so much information. Practically every building in Waterdeep was detailed down to the nth degree and the relationships <laughs> between all those characters and so on. So there was just this mountain of information. And, you know, ultimately, you know, and a couple years later, when we when I first started, there was no line editor on the on the book side for worlds. We were all just kind of being assigned to things so i was working on birthright was a thing at the time i worked on oh, yeah. a couple of Dragonlands books you know so i was just all which was great i was kind of i enjoyed the being all over the map i love the planescape books there's one that i think people need to rediscover all of, there were only four planescape novels all just brilliant beyond belief <laughs> really really spectacularly great fantasy novels regardless of what, how you felt about, you know, the game setting. Of it. But so that was really cool. But then when we came out to be part of Wizards and things got really reorganized, I, and I applaud the decision at that point to really have line editors who are say, this is going to be, you go do this thing. You do the Forgotten Realms. 
you do Dragonlance, etc. And I think I've really worked better, and I think we really were able to re really re-energize things, not just because of the third edition rule set and kind of getting people back into D and D in general, but you know we were re- really able to concentrate on getting the right authors and the right to tell the right stories and and working to work make those fit together in really interesting ways. I had a really good working relationship with the the core RPG team uh, for the Forgotten Realms, Stephen Shend and Julia Martin in particular at that time. And, you know, we just talked to each other in ways that we didn't used to at TSR. And so we're able to engineer things which what we started to call non-changing changes, which were sort of the big stories that would have great, huge implications on the world, but not for a long time. (laughs) So, you know, that was sort of things like the threat from the sea and the Year of Rogue Dragons and and, um, Return of the Archwizards that were adding new bad guys, changing something about the nature, change the nature of dragons in the realms. And then we would assume that if you're still playing this and in your timeline is going a hundred years, the world will look a little different or, you know, at least that part of the world will look very different, but it isn't sort of, Hey, they just released a novel that made your entire D and D game moot. And what was kind of interesting in fourth edition, we were able to pick up some of those threads and then see them in oh, to fruition. You got to kind of bring it full circle and and make use of what you put down beforehand. I, I guess that that is a bright side to the time jump. Oh. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, and you know that, but that was the era where there was always kind of a big story going. Um, the War of the Spider Queen was one of those for sure, and then that, but then that also kind of gave us freedom to just tell all sorts of little stories within, and then it was just making sure that people weren't stepping on each other's toes and the forgotten realms being geographically pretty big it was pretty easy to say well yeah all these salvatore books are really awesome but he never really leaves this kind of northwest corner of the (laughs) the map and so whatever dritzt is doing whatever great adventure he's having people in cormier just have no idea and don't care and they've never even heard of them (laughs) so a completely different story can be happening over there and you know, like that whole the death of King Azun and all that that big thread that went through simultaneous to what everybody else was doing. And it just wasn't necessarily even mentioned. They didn't even know what was going on or care in Icewind Dale or in Fay or wherever. So it was just, you know, basically me just trying to system manage you know keep people from interfering with each other keeping everything a little compartmentalized like go over here with this book and you stay over there with that book and no one go up northwest because that that's drist land and (laughs) right right and then you know it then it was just sort of okay listen i know the draw are cool but we kind of (laughs) got that covered (laughs) and and so you're going to have to find your own stakes in here. And what's great about Forgotten Realms is that because, you know, it it became the sort of default D&D setting, and there was some weird old political stuff in the company when 
it was taken over from Gary Gygax and the new ownership wanted to get rid of Greyhawk just kind of to spite him and bought Forgotten Realms from Ed Greenwood and, and said, well, we're just going to replace Greyhawk with this new thing. But it was then designed, you know, once it became part of the TSR, you know, family of brands, it became, it was the world in which everything from D&D existed. So it was every spell from the player's handbook is there, every race, every class, etc. So it became this, this giant, and it sounds negative to call it a dumping ground, but that's kind of what it was. It was every conceivable fantasy concept would had to find a home in there. The uh, the kitchen sink. It was it was all of it, and so there was this tremendous freedom to say, "What kind of story do you want to write? You want to write about undead? We got undead. You want to write kingdom of evil magic users? We got that, you know." And then it, it so it also allowed authors to be able to go in there and say, "I have a sort of obvious set of rules. I'm not going to blow up the world. I'm not, you know, do anything, some sort of major catastrophe." any kind of global catastrophe but nobody else is going to write about what happens in this city so my thief character or whatever can do whatever he wants and it really worked just by keeping forgotten realms what i call high fantasy or my definition of high fantasy which is i have to save the kingdom as opposed to epic fantasy which is i have to save the world or sword and sorcery, which is I have to save myself. That's actually a very interesting way to, to separate them, and it's so easy. I actually have not heard the definition of that before, and that, that actually that works perfect in my opinion. And because that's the thing that I think I, I always used to struggle with, what is the difference between high fantasy and epic fantasy, or is the two names for the same thing? Because it's the same amount of giant, detailed world-building and I would honestly put the Forgotten Realms world up against Lord of the Rings in terms of just internal detail and history. And it was a group effort, right, as opposed to one single author. But it's enormously writ. So then what, but then the stories that are told are generally very contained and not, uh, not like Dragonlance, right, which was the D&D epic fantasy world that one was definitely peddled for a while as the D setting and iconic D kind of takes a lot of its tropes from that i know that at tsr they tried to run with birthright for a while and now there's finally another person i've met who knows what birthright is before i talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and well that one i found interesting i think the problem that it has dragonlance had where it's too character focused Whereas in Forgotten Realms, you have Elminster and you have Drist, but they're just characters who live in the world. They're just people in the world. They might be heroes, but they live in the world and it isn't about them. And I think that was probably the main appeal as to why, sure, it, it kind of was gen like the dumping ground, as you said, but I think it also had this massive scope where it was, you can tell any story anywhere. Like, like you mentioned, that thief can do whatever he wants in that city because no one's going to write about it. Right. And that's the thing. It was it was a giant, expansive world that had no story to it. It wasn't we had, you know, it wasn't sort of the setting in which we go find the one ring, you know, or the Dragonland. It was just a place 
And the, in the same way that really, I think the real world is just a place and there's no limit to the number of mystery stories and romance stories and so on that you can tell here. That was sort of the, the goal of the Forgotten Realms was to make this an open world where everyone can come in and, you know, kind of stake their little claim. But it's never going to be much more than, you know, sort of at arm's length. I know that for my own setting and my own work, I definitely tried to take that bent a little bit more of creating a world where any number of endless things can happen. And I think it's too much exposure to Forgotten Realms. Well, see, that, and that can cause some damage because I work, you know, with an awful lot of, still a lot of fantasy authors as a, you know, now a freelance editor. And that's sort of the caution that I give everybody is don't overworld build, which is the sort of the first rookie mistake of, of the fantasy author, which is I have to sit down and I have to get as much on paper as Tolkien did. And, you know, there's me as this little squeaky voice in the distance saying, no, don't. <laughs> don't you don't have to create every little detail of the world first to to start writing a story. Let the story tell you what part of the world needs to be created. And then you do have the freedom to have some new idea or better idea as you go along, or for book two, book three, book four, etc. Because you haven't then cemented everything in place the way it, it became very much cemented in place during that, you know, I guess the sort of second edition phase of the of the Forgotten Realms, where so much was known about going way back into, you know, ancient history there. That's a kind of and and again that's like I think is the big disconnect between I'm writing a novel or you know short stories and I'm creating some kind of open world game that especially if you're thinking you know I want this to I want to release this I want this to be some kind of D20 thing or or your own RPG that you want to then give to people and say here go play in this world um, you do have to start creating stuff that isn't necessarily story focused. Yeah, you have to kind of create more of these like sites of interest, places and areas mm -hmm. that people want to go see, even if it's just a little marker on the rock that is like the the stone of the lich god. And it's what 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 is that? It's just a giant stone, and you create a little bit about it that makes people want to go there. And take and hopefully take it from there. Yeah, yeah. E exactly. And and maybe leave a little bit of mystery for the DM to decide. I I know I know Paizo does this a lot in their world for Galarian. And it's they have so many things left open ended just so that way you have this freedom to make some big decisions in the Galarian that you run. And I know there's tons of that in Forgotten Realms as well. It's it's amazing to see it. And I think a lot of the settings I've read that were third party. Uh, made, made by people who aren't one of the major publishers, they're they're too closed ended. Like there isn't just enough wonder and mystery in them to just let people run free. And I think, and and again, I think that is something that if you are sitting down to write a, a fantasy novel. You you don't want it to be closed ended, right? But at the same time, you want to avoid any sort of giant info dump section. 
you know, or even really a small info dump section where it's, you know, I don't think you're going to understand what's going on here until I give you the full history of, which then your story comes to a complete stop as opposed to, you know, in, in something that is here is, here is literally the campaign setting or the, the world book that tells you everything you need to know to set an RPG game in here. You do kind of have to, well, you know, if it ever comes up, this is, <laughs> this is how exactly how the political system works. Here's, you know, a count who hates this Duke and here's why. And now go and spin that out however you want. Otherwise, I think you just, you do want to listen to what, what is your story and what are your characters telling you they need to have built around them and then built it, you know, not, don't try to think of everything ahead of time. Kind of just let it all come together when you're making it, not not worry. And then, you know, then it's the editing process that becomes more difficult. <laughs> then you have to try to figure out, you know, and just, and not try to figure out how to make it all work together, but make sure that it does all work together in the end. But, you know, ultimately, what do your readers need to know right now to move the story forward? And that's how much world building you need in any given moment. And right the and then of course write that down so that the rules don't change somewhere midway through, which is where you're gonna dump everybody out of the story. Yeah, no. It, it I think um recalling back to reading the the dragon some of the Dragonlance adventures for for actual D play, and it's like they want you to copy exactly what they did in the books, exactly how they did it, surrender here to these things and and all this other ways. And it just it, it kind of ruined it. And it's players don't want to copy what they did in the books. They want to copy the excitement of the books, not the events. Yeah, and that's the thing. I th- a really great story ultimately depends on a really great ending. And a really great RPG adventure really depends on no ending at all. Right? So it's it's all about the setup. Right. This is the bad guy. This is what the bad guy's trying to do. This is where it's happening. Right. Here's the dungeon full of monsters and everything. And then you get to the end of this in whatever way you can. If the more you put that adventure on rails, the less interesting it is. So that you have to do this here. You have to do that there. Um, well, you've made the wrong choice. So we're going to just make you do it again over and over again, <laughs> right? Like those sort of endless quest books of like, you go ahead and keep making decisions, but ultimately we're going to, you know, get you to the, get you to something like the happy ending or the heroic. We're not just going to go, well, you're dead and everyone in your family has been murdered. Way to go. Stupid. <laughs> there was, there was really never that ending option, but in, you know, at least back in the old school D and D days, that was definitely an option. My players are way too familiar with that option. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you you missed every secret door, and you're all <laughs> dead morons. <laughs> or you survived, but you know the lich has destroyed the city while you're in there. Uh, you know, it, and that's what makes a role playing game a role playing game. But you know, obviously, a, a story. A novel or short story has to come to an end that everybody's like, ah, oh, that was cool and unexpected and interesting. So I, I actually have a question. Um, if you recall from 
the novels for 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 D&D were did any of them end with a TPK as common as it is for players to face that did the novels ever reflect them? Mm, no I can't think of one that did there were some that ended pretty unhappily you know that not everything was you know the sort of Steven Spielberg ending <laughs> Yay, and it's okay because we won World War II. You know, <laughs> that that saving Private Ryan framing story. And it's like, it's okay. It's all going to work out fine in the end. You know, he's going to have like really pretty grandchildren. So there were some that were pretty, pretty bleak. I mean, at this point, it's been so long that I, I won't worry too much about spoilers. But I think the end of, of War of the Spider Queen was pretty dark. not it wasn't that everybody died necessarily but essentially the reveal was this was all about who's the worst of these people and the worst person wins because that was the whole idea like these are people who are serving a chaotic evil demon goddess and the reward is to become her and so the winner is the worst person here (laughs) you know um, and that was only later on. That was in the sort of post TSR era after we got out to Wizards of the Coast and could shed the uh, the comics code or the the TSR code of ethics that we were able to start to get into darker territory into sort of more grown up storytelling. But as opposed to just sort of, you know, that kind of, you know, the first Evil Dead movie, like, okay, they're all, (laughs) the last guy gets killed, the end. I don't think we ever really went there. That would be kind of mean to the author, but he was, well, I wanted, you know, this to become a big series, like, you know, Dritz. (laughs) So we don't want to kill everybody. Give them a chance. I think personally, and this might be different for for, uh, Chris and Rag. But I know that for me, the my favorite stories were always the short stories. One that I'll I'll never forget is uh is the last Methel series of short stories, the um, the realm of the elves, the last one. Yep, and it's it's traitors, the one where the king killer star gets started and killing the the golden dragons and I just all of it. It was it was awesome, and I, I just remember reading it. Uh, attending my brother's graduation from boot camp and just loving that more than the Georgia heat. <laughs> we well, when I first started at TSR, it was sort of had was a regular thing that there was a every year there was an anthology. It was the sort of part of the schedule that was made every year. And then once we, this is going to sound really weird and and awful. But once we got out to Wizards and people started to like do math and run it as a business, <laughs> you know? which was, trust me, it was a huge change for a lot of people coming from Wisconsin who were just sort of like, we think this is going to be cool and just did it. It was harder for me to, to keep those on the schedule, but I fought to keep those all the time. And finally, they started to become tied into those big stories. So there was that, you know, sort of every year there was the big story like threat from the sea and then the realms of the deep was the anthology that came along with that. And realms of the elves was exactly that realms of the dragons, which there were actually two of those because I bought too many stories. I just went on a, I like all of these sort of spree. And so we, we ended up with two of those. 
but there was always somebody on the business side going, these don't sell as well. It's like, I know, but they're cool. <laughs> like, yeah, they're cool. Let me do it. You know, what the hell? You know, maybe if, if uh, Wizards had adapted early to ebooks, maybe it could have continued. Yeah. I mean, who knows, right? I think they, you know, the the business started changing in ways that I think not there were people there who kind of weren't ready for it. I think too, those short stories, at least from my experience. So like when I was reading the longer ones, like the war of the spider queen, those ones were just excellent stories for me to enjoy as a reader. Whereas the shorter stories in the anthologies, they, I still enjoyed them as a reader, but they provided so much more inspiration in terms of my ideas for stories for adventures. And so if they had went that way, I think that could have been, because I mean, I know they did publish some adventures, um, but they weren't as prolific as I think they could have been. And those were really helpful in a lot of my D&D days. Yeah, and that was another thing that became, you know, was sort of another one of those business decisions that, that sort of were added later, which was that when I first started playing D&D, those adventure models were gold. I needed to have those. Even though everybody, you know, so everybody had the, all the giant and all the descent modules and stuff. So it was really hard to actually run them. But it was, this was how you knew how to even do this at all. And so I've always just had a, you know, a great love of an adventure module. And those were also things that, you know, on the business side, they kept saying, well, these sell like way less than the big source books. And, you know, well, because if there's a D&D group and there's five players and one DM, the DM buys it, the other five players are, are not allowed to buy it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. that's going to, you know, that'll stop you right there. But it's a key component to it. Um, I think it was good that Dungeon Magazine came along to try to fill that, though, and, and say, you know, there has to be a way to keep getting adventure material out there. In Dun- Dungeon was very cool. Did you ever end up writing anything for it just by chance? Um, I did one. So I did an, I wrote an article in Dragon and the same month or right around the same time, the short adventure in Dungeon for Greyhawk 2000, which was the, the campaign setting that almost was. And that was just an, an idea that I had. I was freelancing before I started at TSR. And I pitched that as an idea to Jim Ward, who was in charge of the RPG side back then. And basically it was, what if the world of Greyhawk advanced technologically the same way we did? And the sort of current year in Greyhawk was 10-something. And so I thought, well, you know, the millennium is coming up eventually you know, in, in like eight years from now or whatever, five years. What if we saw Greyhawk in their year 2000? So it was kind of Shadowrun ish, but rather than, you know, the real world with magic, it was the magic world with real. <laughs> Actually, and I'm interesting. I guess he really liked the pitch and he was kind of like, I had heard this as a rumor. I don't know, but he said, we need to hire this guy so that we can have this. And Rob King had left his position as an editor on the books team right just 
coincidentally at the same time. And Brian Thompson, who was running the uh, the book lines then, said, well, I have this opening. I'll at least interview the So I think I kind of got that job because they wanted to secure Greyhawk 2000, which is, makes me feel really good about that, except that <laughs> And then we sort of started to talk about it as, you know, I kind of floated it again. And um, we started talking about it as a D&D setting that it, they wanted it to be an alternative setting, if you remember, alternative, which I know is kind of coming back out that Rich Baker and his guys are bringing it back out. But I kind of cringed at that a little bit because I thought that's the idea. It should be D&D, like this is the way we figure out how to bring computers and stuff into D&D. Um, and we had some great uh, brainstorming sessions and even got some... Sam Wood did some amazing concept art, which I wish I could show to people because it was really super cool. And then it just died, the death of corporate America. <laughs> it died of, of, of lethal exposure to corporate America. As too many great ideas before it had. You know, who? God knows what's left on the battlefield behind us all, right? So what you're telling me is that there's room for this to come in now. I don't know, right? Who knows? Because who owns Greyhawk anymore? I guess it's still um, Wizards of the Coast, but um, I don't know. I even still have a mock-up of a book that our art director put together. It's, it's really cool. And I just sort of kept it as a souvenir, but that's about all it, all it is. But that was the kind of stuff that you know, I loved about working there, at least during that kind of heyday period when we first came out to Seattle and Peter Atkinson had sort of turned the money spigot back on and, you know, it really kind of got us out of the doldrums that we were in. And there was just a lot of ideas floating around. You know, this would be like, and I'm sitting there like, wow, this is like, this is my job. Like, this, you know, they put me in this conference room and we're like brainstorming world building ideas for Greyhawk 2000 and like I'm not going to get in trouble when I go back to my desk this is like what I actually do here um, that was a pretty cool way to spend 15 years of your life I gotta it's hard to not look back on that and go like that was awesome because it was also in that best period of time was really super collaborative it was it wasn't you know, I'm siloed in and this is mine and I'm going to tell everyone. It was, you know, there were teams of people working on this stuff. It it really, really was an awesome time as a, as a consumer of D&D materials just to have all this stuff constantly coming out. The world's always growing and there's so much world building to be inspired by and so many adventure threads and plot hooks to be made. And it it was an awesome time that just, hasn't really been recaptured even even by other companies in my, in my opinion at least yeah and i you know it, it's it's great to see now from you know such a long distance from you know I, I haven't worked there in so long now coming up on 10 years that you know D is kind of back on this upswing it's always you know having started playing it when it was this unknown weird something you know we when i first started playing D D the the first edition DM's guide hadn't been released yet. So there were just sort of pieces of it in Dragon Magazine and previews of it. So from, you know, just as a player, as a fan, 
to watch this, you know, have this kind of first swell of success in the early 80s and then, you know, kind of fall off and then come back with third edition like crazy, then fall off again and then come back with fifth edition. It's just, it's cool to see that cycle on an upswing again. It's like the, the game that wouldn't die. And it better not. It always kind of comes back more popular than when it fell off. And against all odds, too. Like it, it could anybody have predicted that in 2019 or now almost 2020, people are going to be sitting around playing, you know, pencil and paper RPGs. It just, it was, I, you know, I think everybody just assumed, oh no, it's, you know, World of Warcraft has got this. And it's never going to come back. Um, but look at that. Amazing. Human interaction sometimes wins <laughs> out. Who would have guessed? <laughs> Impossible to predict. Those crazy humans. That's, that's, it's so true too. I mean, even when you think about when 4E kind of crawled its way onto the market and into people's hearts, it, it kind of was their response to, World of Warcraft and MMOs and video games becoming so popular and they thought that it was this was the future this is going to end it and then they come back even more popular with 5th edition which is just a mix between AD&D and 3rd edition really and it's impressive and I think that you know I maybe it, part of it is that, that there have always been fans in there right that the company has gone through various incarnations from, you know, the original TF, Gary Gygax's TSR to the Lorraine Williams TSR, which is where I started. And then Peter Atkinson, who is just a fan. He started Wizards of the Coast with the goal to be the next Judges Guild. Uh, you know, he was like, I want to just stuff. And, <laughs> you know, and so when the opportunity to by the company came along it was you know we could not have had a better it wasn't some kind of corporate thing where it's like well i heard you guys have a crazy idea and maybe make some money off it it was i love this i want you guys to do you know have everything you need to do the best job you can and it was just amazing i will never see peter atkinson as anything other than the great hero the man who saved D. absolutely and he really did because it was tsr was completely insolvent he bought the company for the debt Oof. Um, he paid off the debt and that's how he got it um which was a lot of money too by the way <laughs> so um we were all um would come into work and wonder if we were you know going to have a job at the end of the day i definitely see Wizards of the Coast having a incredibly positive effect on D and D as tabletops as a whole. It it just kind of has had this impression with third edition, really with three point five and its popularity, and now fifth edition and all the things that it's done and continues to do. And I, I definitely think I'd like to see more stories return, but that, that's <laughs> yeah, that was too bad. That I mean, I hated to sort of. You know, watch that all disintegrate and, you know, continue to hold it finds a home somewhere else. But, um, you know, right? I mean, everything seems to come around again. You never know. I'm 
I mean, personally, like I, I used to love the Magic the Gathering stories. They're their card game property. And I I loved the novelizations they had for those. I mean, you mentioned Rob King earlier and, and his series of novels that he wrote for that were just informative on my youth and then reading all the D&D books and, and then seeing that all kind of, like you said, disintegrate. It's like, yeah, there's a, there's an attempt now, but it's not what it was. And it's, it's not that it's insulting. It's just disappointing because you know what it was and you, what it could be. Yeah. I don't know. I just would love to come out and, and you know, it's, I'm always happy to have an opportunity to turn people on to Rob King. He writes under the name J Robert King and just one of the great underappreciated fantasy authors, I think of all time. Honestly, if you can find his Planescape trilogy, it's going to be, searching through used bookstores at this point. I don't know if that made it to the whole onto Audible or or yet, but or ever. But if you can find that Blood Wars trilogy by J. Robert King, just do yourself a favor. And not on a, you know, sort of D D level, but just as a spectacularly weird and very, very fantasy trilogy. And all of his writing is kind of like that too, which is why he was perfect for Planescape. Um, he wrote the Odyssey and Onslaught trilogies for Magic, and they're just strange and weird, and yet, like, it's things you never thought you could do with just high fantasy. Like, you, you didn't think you could, and lo and behold, it, there it is, and it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was really just trying, he was working to take it to a next level, right? You know, at a time when, you know, I first started with the company, the first thing they gave you was the code of ethics, which was incredibly stifling. And it was just sort of, how do we find a way to tell an interesting story around what was actually the 1950s comics code? Um, and it was just, it was tough, but he, he found his way around it by getting so weird. There's kind of no way to interpret it. You know, there was sort of, is this the bad guys winning? Cause the bad guys can never be seen to be winning. It's like, I don't even know who the bad guy is. And, and it was just brilliant, just kind of um, working his way through that. I kind of ignoring it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a little curious, the code of ethics for, for TSR. Now, do you, did that come about because of, sti of stipulation or regulation from the satanic panic? Kind of, yeah. I mean, from, and again, that was just before I had started. There was, or a little, or sometime actually before I started there, that, there was this, it was sort of one of those perceived backlashes, right? That, oh, and everybody, everybody's up in arms about this because clearly introduces your kids to the occult and it's got Satan written all over it and all that stuff. And, you know, obviously and honestly, it was like two people just thought, ooh, here's somebody I can hassle. Like, here's a little bit of joy I can quash in the world, you know, whatever it was. Um, and then, you know, maybe one set of parents who just thought, surely we can't have just missed every warning sign that our son was suicidal. So there's got to be somebody to blame, you know, and if it's maybe it's this game he was playing or maybe it was Ozzy Osbourne, you know, yeah. it can't just be us, right? It can't just be him. So there was that. And that, you know. I think everybody knows that second edition was an effort, you know, take some of this, like we, we just won't use the word, 
All references to hell removed, devils removed. And all of the assassins in the realms disappear all at once. Except for Artemis and Trary, by the way, because Bob Salvatore said, oh, he's not an assassin. He's a, he's a fighter thief who kills people for money. Wait a minute. Completely different. What are you talking about? Absolutely no way to compare those two things. So, <laughs> so exception made for the, the biggest bestseller. But, <laughs> you know, it was, I remember as a, you know, just as a fan, as a gamer, you know, ooh, second edition of coming out, we heard all stuff and then i was kind of flipping through it and going like this is why like why that's a weird decision gonna have any more and it was just kind of you know D &D edited but then with thacko (laughs) but yeah that that code of ethics then came in there too right saying that you know we think that these books are being read by kids and this is obviously be- way, way before Harry Potter and sort of the rise of young adult and middle grade fantasy in the book section. So it was, we don't want, you know, we don't want Game of Thrones being read by innocent eight-year-olds. And then, of course, once we became part of Wizards, the first impulse out here was, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Why, do we do- Why do you even have that? That's dumb. We don't care about that. Um, and then, of course, also the the audience had aged by them too, so that you know um, our readership was really in their twenties and thirties. So things started to loosen up. Even then, I mean, there were still some rules you won't see. You know, it's not exactly Game of Thrones, but it allowed for things like War of the Spider Queen, which was all about the bad guys and the bad guys, the bad guys existing in their own context and. Strangely enough, it was always you can have a bizarre act of violence. Definitely just cut pieces off of people, but just don't show her boobies. <laughs> so it was all very, I mean, it was all American in that way. You know, sort of weirdly upside down. You know, these people never have sex, but they murder each other just for no reason all the time. You know, like the first solution to any problem is violence, but don't touch each other it is it's an odd perception very american thing where it's it is i i think george r R. martin said the best you can graphically describe an axe going into someone's head but any amount of nudity Mm -hmm. is is unacceptable it is and i just i will never understand it or you know i i just you know i got this job at tsr where i was just like i'm gonna work at tsr like really like (laughs) so they said here's this is the rule so, you know, I became the hatchet man. I mean, literally, like, you know, editing out sentences and paragraphs of stuff saying, like, nope, that doesn't pass. Nope, that doesn't pass. I, you know, I, some, I, I, we talked about this kind of jokingly, but I wish we had actually done it, which was published the unedited Ed Greenwood, because he was always the one we had to rein back in more than, <laughs> more than anyone. Um, there was this always an excuse to just make somebody naked be naked and then we had to figure out like how do we just can we just take out the word naked and then where's the assume that she's wearing clothes yeah let's just do that all right so <laughs> it was just you know now we're gonna do the the you know the unedited ed greenwood i'd buy that compendium <laughs> uh, you know what i think it would sell like crazy
but then it would still be like, well, this is super tame. Like, you know, <laughs> I have HBO. What's the big deal? This is nothing. But, you know, it was the world was going to come to an end if we if we left that in. Oh, but of course. Mm-hmm. I feel pretty similar because I work with children and I run this huge D&D group for all of them. And it's been like going crazy with all the kids there. They're all roughly 10 years old, but I have to run edited versions and even some of the other staff are like, I don't think you should be describing that bugbear's head being chopped off so viscerally to these children. <laughs> and I'm like, they love it. Get over it. Uh-huh. And, it, you know, it does. It, it's it's odd that, you know, almost every RPG is sort of how you fight with each other and how do you kill somebody and, and what are the available weapons. And I think that there are some, you know, I guess some parents certainly who are looking at this for younger kids and are thinking, like, what is this? You know, I don't get what this is. And nobody really has done, I think, a good job of talking to parents about the difference between real violence and imaginary and how good imaginary violence can actually be for kids that gives them a chance to sort of work through stuff and, you know, rather than do it for real. Um, I would definitely much rather have when my kids were young, I, you know, play Call of Duty than join the army. But that's me. I guess I'm just a big hippie at heart. No, I think there's a lot of psychological research that backs up those claims. Not to mention the other benefits of D&D for developing minds. Like, it helps with critical thinking. It helps with problem solving. It helps with teamwork and group work and host of other things that can go so far as even kind of helping them understand how to deal with certain issues in real life. And I I think, I mean, even in therapy, they'll have you not role play D&D, but they'll have you come up with situations that upset you or whatever and work through them. And you can kind of mask that as a fun time. No, I think all of them, you know, I, I learned more from traveler when I was in high school than I did from any teacher I ever had. I was, straight D math student. Like I just, you know, I would go to the classes and they would kind of explain it. And it seemed like, yeah, I think I myself on a test with no apparent outcome. Like I'm just making these numbers into other and I just couldn't get it. I didn't understand it. And then I started playing traveler, you know, doing their, their time formulas, how long get from one planet to another which was the square root of this over the other (laughs) and all of a sudden i'm just doing the algebra and no one said oh you're doing algebra." like if they had maybe i would have but i could see what i was trying to get and the and once i realized play this game um maybe that was the dis i was just never really given the the end result right this is what you're trying to figure out math for math sake math for math sake i i personally hate it too and then i go around doing probability problems for fucking magic decks <laughs> i know right <laughs> i remember i took physics when i was a senior in high school and the teacher started to talk about vectors and i was like oh my god wait i know this like, like, this is the Traveler Starship combat system. Like, I get, I know this. Like, like for fun at home. And then like, he was just like, what? And so I showed it to the teacher. I brought it in. He's like, this is amazing. Like, this is, 
doing this? Yeah, we get it. We totally get it. Uh, it was insane. That's fantastic. Traveler helping you pass physics. Awesome. <laughs> Where would I be without these games? I'm not sure we've talked a lot about work, but I don't know. I find this all fascinating. Certainly been an interesting conversation, nonetheless. Anyways, uh, my, uh, Rag, Chris, do you guys have anything you'd like to, to bring up? I don't think so in terms of... Uh, I thought you did a great summary of both your career in the RPG space as well as the sort of trajectory and behind-the-scenes bits of 3rd edition, 4th edition, and that whole process, which for me was very illuminating and made me appreciate the setting a bit more so yeah i think in in cases like that like an an absence of information always leads to negative stuff you know like they're not saying why they're doing this we don't understand why they're doing this but it must be that that something evil must be happening right it must be they hate the fans and are you know whatever and you know there's always this sense of well you can't say we don't want to say that and we don't want to tell people just say what's happening I never quite got to the they're doing this because they hate us phase, but I do distinctly, (laughs) well, like when you were describing the delay, right, between the novels and when the fourth edition books came out and they were like, oh, all that bad stuff happened a long time ago. I distinctly remember the experience of reading some of the novels where the characters were like surviving this experience and being like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. My my wizard is going to survive this thing and then his magic is totally different. What? This is so dumb. Right. Is that what the game is that what the game tried to survive the spell plague? And it was just that was never the intention. And you know, not again, not to say that the intention was great, which was you're going to trash everything that were done in the start. But that was the marching orders we got, basically. Uh you'll have to excuse me if I'm outstepping my bounds, but you mentioned you had a uh, a concept art book for Greyhawk two thousand. I, I think I have somewhere I have some of the things. Would you be at all willing to uh, share? I wish I could, but you know, those are all things that were created by an in-house artist, what you know, at Wizard. So I don't know. I mean, I suppose I could probably try to contact someone there and and see if I could do it. I think it's an actual crime that those don't get shared. Those sound. Yeah, it's, I found it really interesting. Just mentioning, I was like, holy shit. Yeah, I know, right? I mean, I was. Right. Just to say that those things are out there. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that, you know, I wish had had happened. The whole Centipede reboot when we became part of Hasbro um, that was so cool and and just disappeared from one day to the next. I mean, there was a bunch of stuff that was really left on the table. I wish we'd sort of had a chance to see through or that people had had a, had a chance to take a look at. But, you know, who knows? And again, in the last 10 years since I've been there, I'm sure there's all sorts of stuff that didn't, that didn't make it. And then there was, you know, the, the, that open call for worlds for campaign settings that we did. Um, and I was part of the, the committee who, who looked at all of those and, you know, sort of decided on, on finalists. And there was some amazing stuff. That was what became Eberron. Um, and there were some that were just like, so cool and weird and different. Would have been really along the same lines. Like the entire world is the dungeon was kind of what we mostly got. But 
in some cases, some of those people really came up with some some bizarre and really interesting ideas. And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, who knows what's going to float to the top, I guess. So since you got to read all of these like fan submitted ones to have the next one and you kind of had an idea, what is it that you think or what what is it that you were looking for in a RPG in specifically in its world building for publication? Well, I think we we didn't what was really interesting Dan in particular never really sat and said this is what we want and this is what we don't want. But for me what I was looking for in that particular context was you know, we have the epic fantasy setting, so we have Dragonland, which is, you know, your characters basically real. Margaret and Tracy's characters save the world. We have Forgotten Realms as a high fantasy setting. And then we are kind of at a loss for what's the sword and sorcery, what's the I save myself kind of grittier, you know, sort of old school pulp setting, which was Dark Sun. Actually, I thought kind of fit that that mold. I can see that that actually kind of fits. Um, though it has the sword and sandals aesthetic, so I guess it it kind of makes sense. But then you know, at that point, that was kind of dead, you know. And so that was the kind of thing that I I was looking for was where something that you know we're we're beyond the now. You know, we don't fantasy has evolved in in so many ways in, in terms of the expectation. It's not just another sort of a, a rehash of, of Lord of the Rings. We want to see different things. So that's what really I was looking for was what is the kind of, and I have this great love of pulp fiction, that old, you know, the that's kind of where I came into fantasy through Robert E. Howard via Marvel Comics and, you know, kind of that old school tradition. That that was kind of what I was looking for, is where can I just be, not literally Conan, you know, the Conan role-playing game, that, but that kind of tougher, less civilized world. Yeah. Like a wandering, tough guy in a brutal world. And Nebron's what kind of came out from that? It wasn't entirely up to that, right? <laughs> right? But at the same time, one of the reasons, one of the things that I, and what got, my vote for Eberron was that it, it was presented as that. It was, but rather than this is, you know, the Conan world, it was it was pitched really as um, this is kind of the Sam Spade or Mickey Spillane world with fantasy. That that was sort of the the kind of the the the, the log line pitch, right? It was a civilized kind of settled place where magic took the place of technology and worked with technology. And that, you know, kind of the idea was you were kind of like a private detective or that, that was that kind of an adventure as opposed to, you know, I'm going to go off on this epic quest across the continent. It was more like I'm going to solve mysteries and stuff. Yeah, it has this like grittier feel to it, like a noir book, a swashbuckling tale, a desperado tale. And those are all viable things you can actually do in Eberron, which is awesome. And so I can kind of see it having that similarity to old sword and sorcery stuff of being kind of more personal, a little bit grittier, a little bit more low to the ground in terms of scope. So I, I 
I personally think it lives up to that expectation. Do you, do you think it lived up to the expectations you had when you selected it? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, kind of it went through a development process that said, but, you know, it still has to accommodate this from D&D and we have to make, you know, but it, I, I think that it, it did it retain that spirit of a uh, uniqueness that we weren't seeing in a lot of other of the other settings or the other pitches that we're getting, which were, you know, kind of variations on the medieval fantasy theme, right? I've drawn a map of, and here's the, how the kingdoms kind of relate to each other, which is exactly what Dragonlance is and what Forgotten Realms is, exactly what Greyhawk is, and so on. So, you know, I think Eberron just sort of said, and then there's this whole other level to it that we're realizing magic and it's not just strictly medieval, which to me was I thought was always fascinating because I think once, and you know, certainly from a world building perspective, once magic becomes too pervasive, of course it's going to end up taking the place of technology, and that's kind of what what magic in our world is, where you know we invent our way out of stuff, and so if you can create a magic item that allows somebody to fly or that will allow a machine that you've built to fly. You've invented the jet engine, basically. And why wouldn't it then take off in the same way? And pretty soon, people will say, I want to be able to and do all this sort of other stuff. And I think that's exactly what Eberron is going to, which was, if I can power a train with magic, then I'm going to build that thing. Why wouldn't I build that thing? Everybody's going to want that. Yeah, why wouldn't its form come into something a little bit more ease of use, mass mass use, than just like a wand or one wizard sitting there? People are going to want to fly in mass. They're going to want to transit in mass. It makes perfect sense. And it is kind of hard then to keep, well, we all live in this kind of medieval world where everybody's a farmer and, you know, right? And, but there's this whole layer of people who can do these miraculous things, but for some reason they kind of choose not to, or they keep they keep it to themselves. Which is, I think, for anybody, any fantasy builder, that challenge is then, how is this limited in some way so that it, it, not everybody can use it? Which was sort of, the, I, that was kind of understood in D&D from the beginning, that you have to be a magic user to use this, that it's not just Anyone can cast a spell. Your fighter can't do it. It's not that he just sort of chose to do something else. It's just, I can't, he can't do it. So it's limited to only a certain number of people who are willing to, you know, go down that path or have some kind of spark to them or something like that. And, you know, that's kind of, you have to really make that decision. I think magic, like technology, is kind of all or nothing. You're either it's it's out there and it's for sale or it's controlled in some way that was always my um i suppose my intimidation about trying to make any sort of modern setting that had a fantasy flair in it uh specifically for like the reasons you were talking about of like well it should become mass produced and then like wouldn't all of technology seem or be really different like why would i invent the airplane when i could invent like mass a 
a factory for making these fly ones, right? And stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And you have to think of everything. Right. So, well, I mean, everybody just with a flying potion would be crashing into each other. But the, yeah. <laughs> the, but even then, like, you could open a portal, right? Or mm-hmm. teleport people from here to there. And then, you know, but but ultimately it sort of serves the same purpose, that you would, you know, you now have a world that's more cosmopolitan, you have a world where people have actually seen this other, other city, they've actually been there. Um, people from that other place have have come to their city, etc. You know, I think it's it's it definitely can be done, and I think also if you look at at technology, not everything is freely available to everybody. I mean, I you know I buy tickets on airplanes. I don't have an airplane, and you know even if I did, I'm going to be following strict rules about you know what direction I'm flying in and how high I'm going, how fast. I'm so that I don't bump into somebody else's airplane and so on. So, you know, there's, is there some measure of control over it? There would have to be otherwise. You could see, you know, if everybody was seventh level wizard, it would just be mass chaos, right? It would be so easy to steal from each other and, you know, accidentally burn places down like that. That there ha- seems like there would have to be some control over it. Yeah, it goes a long ways when you're saying it's an all or nothing type situation. Um, I mean, to make the technology comparison you just did, you can use real world examples of like why certain regions aren't as um, up to like modern standards of technology as others. Constant war, natural disaster type situations, political situations where there's like a tyrant or some situation like that. And you can just transport those into your fantasy setting and be like, well, this isn't or this is why. You know, every farmer doesn't just take one level of wizard after learning how to read to get, you know, create water the cantrip because that would be incredibly useful. <laughs> sure would be. Right. Or just, you know, join the religion that allows you to create food and water and yeah. eliminate the middleman. <laughs> like, what's for dinner? I don't know. Let's pray something up. <laughs> and, you know, that it's the sort of thing that. You know, D&D as a game in particular, well, I don't or well, I guess we'll have to blame it on Gary Gygax and Dave Artinson. Never really thought through all that stuff and thought, well, if people can do all these things, why are we living in society that this would help us to, you know, just with greater crop yields and all of this kind of stuff. And I think what was great about the original conception of D&D was we're, we're not going to tell you that that's up to you to to decide that that that's there was an assumption in the original D D rules that now you're going to go create a world for these things to exist in so it was this much world building right we're going to tell you how magic works so that it's consistent throughout and there's this difference between arcane and divine and, and so on but then go put that someplace into some kind of context that makes sense. And that was really left for everybody to decide. And and it could and it got complicated, for instance, Forgotten where you know, well now you, you really have a lot of people here who are clearly using magic at a very high level and they're just kind of deciding not to do stuff. <laughs> you know, there and so in there there are 
built in you know adversaries people who are actually trying to keep each other in check and then ultimately you know there was a sort of magic police force there the chosen that would you know kind of keep things keep the weave together and so there was a sense that there was a, a higher power kind of keeping magic in check to some degree and those are the things that you got to kind of think through is well if anybody can do it then everybody's gonna be so how do we limit that or let it go and see where that takes you take you to the absolute chaos of regular everyday civilians throwing fireballs around the street during a riot which could oh, be fun. I mean, I would read that fun. book, right? I mean, <laughs> Hyper magical society going through a French revolution. That actually sounds pretty awesome. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's like 500 gods and they all just like show up like, Hey, come and help me. And they do like, they're actually there. You know, like That's rough, right? That's kind of hard, but that's the sort of things that we talk about, you know, in world, in world building in general is I think most of world building, I've said it before that 90% of, of world building is naming things. I can agree to that. And I kind of stand by that as a half joke, half serious. But if the other 10%, I think is limiting things, it's, you know, putting drawing circles around so that they don't get out of control. And so you don't end up with a character like Superman. When it's like, how do I write a story for this indestructible guy who can do anything? Um, and can't be hurt by anything. There needs to be something at stake here. And it's limitations on people. Where So, within world building, where do you think the best place for someone who's new should start? We can keep this mostly to RPGs for simplicity's sake. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the great things about RPGs, right, is that once you say, we're going to sit down, we're going to play, Whatever that gives you some big chunks of world building already in terms of how magic you are. So this is how you cast a spell. This is what the limits of of that thing is, what it can and can't do. How it tells you a little bit about the what powers they can grant to you and and what you can kind of expect from them. Which is to say, if you're first level. and then as you as you go up in levels maybe you're getting some ability so i think those are things that and i there are definitely a lot of authors came into fantasy or rpgs in general that have kind of learned world building it's like how does magic work what are the limits around things how do you know what is the sort of you know there's a game mechanics to it that is you can use this will you know has an of this many feet and you know a duration of this many rounds so it get it started people thinking certainly started me thinking as a sort of young fantasy about the limitations of things that it isn't just i can kind of do anything i want with a snap of fingers i've got this limited set of of skills so I think learning world building through RPGs is a great way to do it because it's it the game mechanic side of it forces you to think in terms of exactly what this can do. Yeah, so I'm just you know I think it, it's really about 
world building is about rules, and in role playing games, those rules are literal. There's actual numbers attached to those. In fiction, you just have to convey it in action. Like setting the limitations on your own setting um, are kind of one of the things that you should kind of understand first before you really dig into it. Is is what I got from from what you're saying? Yeah. 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 I think so. Yeah. And again, I think it's entirely different, on, or not entirely different. There are differences between approach to I'm creating a D and D campaign setting, or I'm creating a setting for this story, um, a place for this character to live. But I think the commonality is about the limitations: who can use it, when can you use it, how big is this monster, what is it. Eating? How tall is it? You know, how strong is it? What what weaknesses does it have? And then going, you know, and and then that's the next level. Again, the D and D doesn't necessarily, or the good sort of rule set doesn't necessarily do for you, but the the campaign settings, and not just I I go back to Forgotten Realms because it's the the world I lived in for the longest and and worked on you know, in the most detail. But whatever that setting is, then gets, you know, gives you a sense of governments and how they work to together or oppose each other. The difference between culture and government, right? The difference between religion and government. The effect that religion has on culture and I think the the campaign set the D and D campaign setting, and then all, you know the sort of RPG worlds that came after, both in the analog or pencil and paper and the and the you know digital or video game world, really brought something new and interesting to the to the world, the real world. Here is a a book that describes an imaginary place, and that's all it does. So if you open up the, you know, Forgotten Realms campaign setting book from your, you know, your choice of editions, you're getting an encyclopedia of an entirely created world. And that's all it is. Uh, It doesn't, there's not, it's not a really boring chapter of this novel. It's, that's the whole thing. And, And all of the efforts were put into just building the world. And now you go tell a story in there. I don't know that people really kind of get that that's a very new and very unique and strange invention. Yeah. That it's, it's kind of this only what last 30, 40 years that it's really kind of taken off. I mean, even early D and D was only starting to form it. And then when, then you have the explosion of settings, of course, it's kind of with that. I think that, that reading a book that is just a fantasy, a fantastical created world, that that's new like even reading like a fantasy novel like reading like lord of the rings it's not the same thing and i i think that's amazing personally i'm i'm glad that i get to live through the time of this thing of this is hype (laughs) yeah (laughs) and it really is it's all you know and obviously role-playing games have been a major influence on my on my life i mean i just like can't yeah <laughs> underestimate you know the the influence they've had but you know they 
it's a thing that did not exist in any form that just appeared as if by magic in a very unlikely place from very unlikely sources. You know, kind of high school dropout nerd in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And, you know, and as a kid, I'd been to Lake Geneva in the summer on little, like the kind of this little touristy town. A population of 5,000. This is just not a place that something like that is invented. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> right. Or I guess it is, right? It's just, and it, it, without that, there would be, I think if you look around the massive multi-billion dollar video game industry, where would that be without D&D? And how many of those games that are huge successes? Um, Elder Scrolls is D&D, you know? It's just D&D. Mass Effect is D&D or Traveler, you know? It's the, it's the science fiction version of that. They're all kind of D&D. I mean, the whole how much health you have is how many hit points you have. Everybody levels up. That's D and D. Yeah. The impact is it's astounding. You, you can't quantify how much it has changed because it changed so much, especially in just hobbies in general. Mm-hmm. And you know, do you know that there are just millions of people playing you know, especially these big video game franchises who will never, kind of don't get that. You know, <laughs> well, this is kind of really all D and D with you know a, a computer making some of the you know rolling the dice for you basically. You don't notice you're rolling dice. <laughs> that can't be. That can't be true. It's like, but it just it really is. Um, and they just it just never occurred to them to patent that. So they just gave that gift to the world. Just, and here is the role-playing game. You know, I don't think that's ever going to happen again. No. And thank God it did. Right. (laughs) Like when my mother and when I was in high school said, boy, if you spent as much time on your homework, it's a good game. But I build a lifelong career on it. like this is I not everybody was me, right? I didn't you know, I I just decided no, I'm doing this. Like I'm not just gonna be an accountant or something, I can't do it. Like I you know, this I'm gonna do some version of this. And you know, it was great to have the last laugh. But I'm not the only one. I mean there's people out there working on, you know, whatever video game and then, you know, one after another you just see them come out all the time, you know. Role playing games now as as D and D is on that upswing and bringing other people with it. It's become this massive thing and global too. Yeah, there's people and with the advent of virtual tabletop simulators like Roll Twenty, where you can just go on the internet and play a game on the internet of D and D, you can play with people around the world, and it's yeah, it's amazing. It's there. How about that? Don't make me cry, guys. I know. Too beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Gary Geiger. Yeah. Dave Artisan, who doesn't get as much credit as he totally deserves. <laughs> <laughs> They're great American heroes. You know? True patriots. <laughs> they are. Thank you, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. But <laughs> why does that feel 
sad for some reason <laughs> when it's actually all good news. It's actually really great. Good for them. They created a thing that brought amazing things to the world. <laughs> and as in legitimately enthralling as this has been, um, I, I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll let you um, talk a little bit about your world building course for Writer's Digest. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, please take the stage. <laughs> Yeah, so this is something that I do with Writers Digest University that is starting up again on January 9th. And so you can go to, um, actually, just find me on Twitter. It's at Phil Athens, P-H-I-L-A-T-H-A-N-S. And you will not fail to see me pimping this course and just follow the link there. But it's four weeks where, it, and it's all online, show up at a certain time. Don't worry about what time zone you're in. I, it's a global thing, which is great. There's, you know, always people from, you know, scattered around the world who are, who are part of each course. And for four weeks, we just dig into the, at least the big uber topics of role, of not role playing games, but role playing games for sure, but of world building. And it is definitely open for gamers, authors, if you're working on screenplays or games, anything. And there's some assignments, so you just do an assignment every Sunday, send it, give you some feedback on that. And there's discussion boards where you can meet and, and trade stories and ideas with uh, the other people in the class. And it's, again, it's all done really easily on, through Writer's Digest University. Um, does it cost anything? It does. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, right off the top, I had I don't know exactly how much outside of that you know the hired from Writers Digest, but follow those links in it, yeah. and uh, you'll see all that. You'll they'll give you all that. But awesome. We've been doing. I've been running this one for. I I've even lost track of how many separate runs of this course have have happened. It kind of comes up on a cycle. Um, I've got a few other ones. I've got a pulp fiction workshop where we just write a 6,000 word short story or everybody writes a 6,000 word short story over four weeks and then two horror writing classes. But I just, I love doing these. And, and this is actually one of the things that I, I've always loved about being an editor. Same time has always kind of caused me mixed feelings, which is you can publish so little of what you read but so much of it is actually really great. And I think that goes back to what I was talking about, the open call for campaign settings that ended up with Eberron. It's, I think it was Norman Spinrad who said that 80% of anything is crap. And I disagree with him. I think 10% is crap, 10% is great, and 80% is actually really... So for me, I love these courses. I get to see some really great stuff from talented people that's come from all over the place so january 9th on writer's digest you could take the world building course with ill athens thank you for coming on phil it was honestly amazing i loved hearing every second of this and i'm floored by how awesome this was because i thought it was going to be great it even <laughs> surmounted that I, I got to hear watsy lore i had never heard before get get to talk about the actual dark side of the editing room and so much more. Oh, and once again, someone else who knows about birthright.
it was nine. My time there was ninety nine percent fantastic, and the one percent, <laughs> yeah, you know, you live and learn. Um, but it would thank you for having me. It's really been fun to just chat about stuff. And you're most certainly welcome back. This was fantastic. Thank you. Great. And thank you all for listening. Have a great night. You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media. Or feel free to come chat with us on the Worldbuilding Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep worldbuilding. building.